Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I'm just curious, how many of you in the remainder of this year are planning a vacation to somewhere where there's beach and sun and water? All right, good for you. God bless you. I'm jealous. I know that, especially when I was a little bit younger, if I knew that I was heading out to the beach, then for several months before that vacation, I was preparing. You know what I'm saying? You know, getting that washboard back out and, uh, you know, because you're about to be on display and so you want to get ready because you can't think a week before the trip, shoot, I should uh, watch what I eat. Some things require a little time to prepare. And I'm sure that because this Wednesday marks Ash Wednesday, that's the beginning of what we call in the Christian calendar the Lenten season. And I don't know what your experience has been like with Lent, but a lot of people misunderstand what the purpose of Lent is. I really believe that the Lenten season is set apart a 40-day period for us to prepare ourselves for one of the most significant days of celebration and remembrance in the spiritual year. It's a 40-day period leading up to Easter where we celebrate the resurrected Christ and the reminder that this life isn't all there is. When we're dead, we don't die, but we live forever. And even in this world, things that are dying can come back to life because of the resurrection power of Jesus. It's a very hope-filled day. It's a day that reminds us that what we think is over isn't over because God is still alive. And some of you have come right to the edge of those moments in your life and seen Jesus break through. That's what we celebrate at Easter. But the older I get, the more I realize this old stubborn heart doesn't feel as passionately as it used to. When I was younger, everything got me excited. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Where are my 40 and 50 plus year olds at, right? So you guys remember, because when I was in my 20s, everything got, going to McDonald's got me excited. Now I make a reservation two months out at a five-star restaurant. I'm like, yeah, it's coming, all right. And I'm more stressed about the bill than about the food. And so I find that the older we get, the memories of that first love fade And for us to really understand and celebrate the significance of these key days requires some preparation of the heart. That's what Lent is about. One of the things we do during Lent is we fast from something. That's just one of the things we do. And before I talk about fasting, one of the other things a lot of people do is they set apart a 40-day activity that doesn't just deny themselves something, but pursues something very actively. So here's some ideas for that. If you're not on a reading program, a Bible reading program with us this year, there are lots of 40-day reading programs out there that you can get on the Internet. And for 40 days at least leading up to Easter, you can consciously get on a Bible reading plan. That's one conscious thing you can do. Some of us are really bad at journaling. How many of you tried and stopped journaling like a 1,000 times a year? I'm, I'm a terrible journaler. But some people, for 40 days, they make it a daily pledge, I'm going to journal for 40 days. Others who are artists will make one piece of artwork that takes 40 days, a masterpiece that's devoted to their faith in Christ. You can do whatever it is that gives you some tangible connection to your Savior. And then you can also do something called fasting. And the purpose of fasting is to create a little space and to create a little focus in your life by giving up something that you like enough that every day it'll remind you Hey, where'd you go? For some of us, what we give up is something like Netflix or coffee or chocolate or a video game. Those things are good reminders because you'll come around regularly and you'll be like, hey, I really want to do it. And it's an invitation in that reminder to go and turn to Christ and set your heart on him. But I really want to recommend not just giving up other things, but to seriously consider giving up food at some level. Because I find that while, you know, I gave up video games until Easter this year, and I haven't, I've just completely forgotten about it. So some things I give up after the first three days of, you know, DTs, like, it's over. I don't care. 
But food, I find it's impossible to ignore that little grumbling. And so I find that food is one of the most effective ways to build a fast that keeps you remembering that you set the season apart for something. This year, I'm going to do what I did last year, and I'm going to invite anyone to join me for any length of it. Um, During Holy Week, the last week before Easter, I'm going to do a five-day fast, liquid only. And I want to thank all those people who joined me last year, because that really encouraged me to be in it together. Uh, If you want to join me for any portion of that five-day fast, I wholeheartedly encourage you. It really produces focus and sets your heart apart. Some of you won't be able to go to work if you do that, and so... I don't want you endangering other people's lives. But if you can do something like that, I would love for you to join me in that. But at some level, what I'm asking us as a church to do this year is don't just let Easter sneak up on you. Set your heart intentionally to prepare to celebrate what Easter represents in our lives, who Jesus is to us. Amen? So I'm going to ask you to bow with me. Let's pray that right now. Lord, we confess that this talk of commitments or denials for a 40-day period is for some of us intimidating. For some of us, it's even annoying. And yet, Holy Spirit, if you want this for us, if you want us to experience the benefits and the blessings that come with this choice, then we pray that it would not be a person, it would be you, directly nudging our hearts, that this would not feel like a burden and a drudgery, but an invitation that comes from you. Call out to us one by one and draw our hearts into a place of making ourselves ready for this great day that is coming. And we pray that as each person here in their own way responds to this, there will be tremendous blessing and a difference in our hearts that we can actually feel this year as we approach Easter. So bless us this Wednesday as many will begin an intentional 40-day period of preparing. Bless us, Lord, and reveal yourself to us and waken our hearts once again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you, even if you don't do it a single other time before the end of the day, to just look up at me and smile. It just encourages me. Because I know you got to look at my face, but i got to look at all your faces too for like 40 minutes. And so just smile and remind me you're with me in the room. We're here in it together. We still love Jesus. Um, all right, good. Thank you. That, that really helps me. This morning, we're going to continue on in our series on Psalms. And I tried to plan this series ahead of time, and it's like the series just refuses. I had, until Wednesday of this week, a different psalm in mind, done all the research, the study, and then I just felt the Lord press on my heart on Wednesday a different psalm. So I changed it, and all that work was out the door. It's just the way it goes sometimes, and so I think this, this series, we're just going to see where God takes us. Uh, I hope that's not too distracting for the worship team. Um, it's really distracting for me. I'm usually like six months out, I know what I'm going to preach. But this time, I, it's just throwing me for a loop. And this week, the Lord gave me truly in my heart Psalm 63, pressed it really heavy. And so I want to look at this psalm together with you. Psalm 63, the title of the message is You Are My God. As much as possible, I'm trying to take the titles of these messages directly from some of the words in the psalm itself. Because these are song lyrics, and I'm not going to try to improve on song lyrics that are beautifully written. Here's the word of God. Psalm 63, a psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This psalm, it's a song meant to be sung together. It's a song that David wrote when he was in the Judean wilderness. And that's the way it begins. There's a little note. It's not meant to be part of the text, but this is a note to the praise leader explaining the context of the song. And there were at least a couple times, it doesn't specifically mention which episode of David's life this was from, but there are two significant times when David found himself fleeing into the wilderness. And by wilderness, this is in fact an actual picture of the wilderness that David had fled to. So this is the the, uh, Judean wilderness. Not much happening. If I had to spend any length of time out there, I'd be depressed. Look at the place. Just nothing. And the two times that he was out there that were very significant in his life, in both occasions, he had to flee because someone was trying to kill him. In the first occasion, it was his father-in-law, Saul, Before he had become his father-in-law, he was trying to kill David, so he took off. He ran for his life because Saul didn't want David to be king. On the second occasion, it was his own son Absalom who was chasing him because he wanted David to stop being king so that he could replace him as the king. Uh, Maybe you thought you had family problems, but this brother is running for his life twice. He leaves the royal palace, flees for his life. Once because his father-in-law was trying to murder him. So just take a minute and be thankful for your in-law situation, as bad as it is, because I haven't had anyone come for me for counseling because their in-laws are trying to kill him. And then his own son tries to murder him to take over his throne. Now, we're not sure exactly which one, but the very good guess is it's the Absalom incident because verse 11 shows us that he's already king at this point. And so it's very likely that he wrote this during his trial, running for his life from his son, who's trying to take over his throne. If you remember, we've already looked early in the series at Psalm 3, which was another of the songs that David wrote during this really difficult period of his life. And I guess the lesson there is, if the trial, if the struggle is real enough, one song doesn't do it enough, right? I mean, there are some things you go through, you could write 80 songs and it still wouldn't do justice to the pain you're feeling and how hard it feels to be in the middle of that trial. And so we're going to look at another angle. The last time in Psalm 3, we looked at David crying out to God saying, I trust you, I need someone to rescue me, and I have no one but you. So it was a song of deliverance, asking God to deliver him from this trial. In this one, it's a very different kind of song altogether. It shows yet another angle of the way that a a person who loves God responds to trials. For David, the wilderness was not a metaphor. Okay, It wasn't a metaphor. It was a place that looked just like this. And so when he writes that I thirst for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water, David finds himself in a physical setting where everything around him mirrors what's going on inside of him. Have you ever been in a situation like that? I've walked into homes of people who are going through a really hard time and it's like they just have stopped caring for their home, and so it's dark, it's smelly, it's a lot of stuff piled up, because at that point, the last thing on your mind is tidying up. You've just sort of, the inside of your life is beginning to show itself in the outside of your life, and when the two match, there's kind of a, 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 a consonance there, right? A, an agreement. And that's what's happening for David, is he's looking around saying, this desert I'm in isn't just a physical place, it's also a metaphor for what's happening inside me. I'm literally in the wilderness of my life. And so his opening words in that horrible place, physically suffering, emotionally suffering, spiritually suffering, full of doubt about his future, and he begins with these words, Oh God, you are my God. 
And that sounds very churchy and very religious-y, doesn't it? Very Bible-y. I'm learning from my kids to make up new adjectives just by adding Lee. But it sounds like the kind of stuff you're supposed to hear in church, that if you're a Christian, you're supposed to say stuff like that. I really believe those words are the most basic foundational testimony anyone can make. Before you can say anything more, it begins with that statement. God, you are also my God. And that's where the journey begins for us. Now, I want to focus a little bit on the word my, which is why I highlighted it. That's the possessive pronoun my. And it's an interesting word because you could use it in two very different senses, can't you? In the one sense, the word my speaks to something that belongs to me. So I could speak of my house, my car, my jacket. It's something that I have authority and rights over because it is my possession. But there's another sense of using the word my, where it speaks to I belong to something else. That's what we mean when we say, this is my family. I don't own it. It's not mine, but I belong to that family. This is my church. This is my country. So do you understand the difference there? You can say my, and in one case you're saying this belongs to me, or you can say my, and in that other sense, I belong to it. So which sense do you think it is with which David says, you are my God? And don't be so quick to give the right answer, valedictorians of the church, because the truth is, in actual practice, it's the first sense that often rings truer in the way we talk about God. Hey, you're supposed to be my God. Why are you not on my side? Why am I not winning? How come that person looks like they have the upper hand? How come they're winning favor? How come they're influencing others? How come, how come, how come, how come, how come they get everything and they misbehave and I get nothing? You're supposed to be my God. And when we talk about that, it's almost exactly the same feeling I'd have if I rubbed an old lamp and a blue genie came out and said, I'll do whatever you ask. And I'm like, good. You are my genie. You're mine. And so you're supposed to make things good for me. You're supposed to do what I ask. Do you remember last week, one of the things that really stood out for me in Steve's sermon was when he said, false religion, man-made religion, is when we try to manipulate God through acts of devotion. So that even when we're doing the right things, we're doing them not because we are devoted to God, but because we hope that will make him devoted to us. The truth is, even though we know that we're supposed to say, my God, as I belong to God, we often deal with God as if he belongs to us. That's why we express such disappointment in him, sometimes even criticism of him. David is saying in that moment, whatever my life is about, I know to whom I belong. I have no confusion there that there is a God and I belong to this God. It's the only sense in which he's able to say, you're my God. I also even thought about the first two words. Oh, God. Man, there's at least a couple very distinct ways you can say, oh, God, especially when things are not going well. You can say it like this. Oh, God. You can't, that can't communicate in writing. You got to hear the audio, right? But, oh, God. Oh, my God. We even have an acronym because we don't even want to say the word. OMG. It's a statement of frustration, perplexity, annoyance, even accusation. Oh, my God. Uh, did you take out the garbage yet? No, I, I forgot. Oh, my God. So, you see, that's one way you can say, oh, God, is like an expletive. Like, what the heck? OMG. But I've also met people. I don't yet number myself among them because I am flawed. <laughs> I aspire to be more like these people. I know people who, in the midst of the most annoying situations, they say, Oh Lord, oh Lord, help us. I'm stuck in traffic and I'm like, What is wrong with that person? And I hear this person next to me going, Oh God, please let that driver be okay. I, I remember once. I was at a, a, a stoplight in my neighborhood, right before the entrance of my neighborhood, and the light turns green, and the person's not moving, two cars up. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Then I start laying on my horn, still not going. I'm picturing in my mind, in my self-righteous mind, there's probably some teenager on the phone. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, get off your dumb phone. And so I pull around 
cross the double yellow, pass two cars to enter my neighborhood. I'm like, what is that person's problem? It was only as I'm pulling to the garage, I'm like, what if they were hurt? What if they were having a cardiac? What? And I just, like, why is my brain so rotten? Why is my heart so wicked? I've known people who in a situation like that will immediately go to, oh, I, please let that person be okay. And I think, why am I not more like that? I aspire for all of us to be the kind of people who when we say, oh, God, it's not a curse or a condemnation. It's a plea. It's an acknowledgement that this is a human situation over which God is the only one with real authority. And I'm appealing to him, not accusing him or complaining to him. Oh, God, right? How do you usually say, oh, God? And pay attention to this now because you know how when you buy a car, you see that car everywhere on the road? I want you to be alert to this now. Listen to all the times this week that you find yourself saying out loud or in your inside voice, oh, God. And count the proportion of the times you use those words in frustration or accusation more than a crying out to God. When your child is frustrating, when your friend is hurting you, and you're like, oh, God, please do something here. Versus, oh, my God. Are you with me? So this is like a grammar lesson. I'm just, different ways you could say the same words, but it reveals different things about the heart. And then he says, my God, I earnestly seek you. He's in a place where not very much can hide. I mean, he's like, it's just nothing out there. And what he says is, out in this wasteland, I am seeking one thing. And I thought about seeking because sometimes before we leave the house, there's a frenzy of activity, and it almost always involves someone who hadn't prepared ahead of time running around the house seeking something, right? So when we need something, we desperately run around looking for that thing which is going to help us. What you earnestly seek reveals what you truly believe will help you the most. And when you find it, you stop seeking, right? When you find it, you just stop seeking. So the question I have for you this morning is, what is it that you're earnestly seeking? Especially if you're in a place of trial. What are you seeking? Are you seeking to change the mind of another person? Are you seeking vindication, validation, victory? Are you seeking simply to be relieved from the trial? Are you seeking resources so you can regain control over the situation? What are you seeking desperately whenever you find yourself in trouble? How do you cope when life puts you in a place where nothing is in your control? When you find out there's another round of layoffs coming and you know that you have not been gold star A-list attitude for the last three months, you're like, uh-oh, shoot. What do you do? How do you respond? Where does your heart take you? And what do you seek when trouble is on the horizon? Now, the fact that David says he seeks for God doesn't mean God's hiding. Uh, you know, I was going to put a picture, but why... why even do that. You've seen kids play hide and seek, right? <laughs> one, one, two, three, four. The cheater's always like this. One, two, three, four. But the idea is someone hides and the other person looks for him. But things aren't hiding, right? It's not like your keys are hiding. They're where you left them. You just disremembered. Sometimes the things we're looking for are right in front of us. That's just the truth. In any relationship, Here's what I've discovered. I think you know this to be true, too. It's so easy to look right past the people who are right in front of you. I mean, to just never really look at them, to decide for yourself what they stand for, what they believe, what they're like, and not actually look. I was just talking to someone about this this last week, about how once our kids become older, we stop asking questions. We're stopping curious. They are evolving daily. They're changing at an exponential rate compared to you and me. We stopped changing a long time ago. We kind of became who we were. Our kids every day are becoming new. They're different. But at some point, we stop asking real questions. 
We stop really looking at our kid. We're just, anytime we ask a question as parents, it's a trap for a lecture, isn't it? How's school going? It's not a real question. You don't care how they're experiencing school. You just want to know, are you studying hard? Are you doing... Do you know what I'm talking about? These questions that are not real questions, they don't reveal real curiosity, no intent to actually learn about the person. You're just setting them up for your next lecture. Oh, I can't wait to hear the answer to this one. It's what we do. The people right in front of us, we stop seeking, and so we stop seeing. You've just decided what God's like, right? I know what God's like. How can I think differently? Look at my situation. No change. God's still the same. And the truth is, sometimes we stop seeing because we stop seeking. To really see anyone, you can't give up the quest to really look at them. Ask them, listen to the answer, seek after them. That's what God, David is doing to God. He's saying, it's so hard to see you right now because of my situation and my surroundings, but I know you're right here. I'm just not seeing you. So I'm going to seek after you because seeing you will help me more than seeing anyone or anything else. If I see Absalom approaching with a white flag of surrender, that will not help me more than seeing you come to my rescue. Are you with me so far? I'm not going to spend this much time in every verse, okay? In fact, I'm not even going to cover the whole psalm. I'm just going to give you the highlight reel of the first several verses here. David goes on to say, I'm looking for you, but it's not like I'm looking for something theoretical like the Sasquatch or the unicorn. I should tell you the story sometime about the, the one time we were in the hills of um, Kentucky or Tennessee, and Zoe, Jean, and I truly believe we saw a unicorn in a field. That's a, it's a weird story. I'll tell you someday. But we're not looking for a thing that doesn't exist. David's looking for someone he's seen and he's known. This is not the seeking of a person who's not sure he'll find him. It's the seeking of someone who says, I know it's right here. I've seen it before. A lot of times when we're in the thick of our troubles, it's really, really hard to see God, isn't it? I mean, think about if you're married... Think about how when you were just standing at the altar, everything seemed awesome and it was really easy to see God. God gave me this person. Why is he so good to me? Why is he so nice to me? Do you remember that day where you're like, I can't believe this is happening? Fast forward 30, 20, 10 minutes, I mean years, and uh, you're like, what was he thinking? Do you see how differently? Because, excuse me, We sometimes forget in trouble the goodness of God. And yet, here's the powerful thing. We know he has been good. We can't deny that. Some of you are here this morning for only one reason. God has not shown himself to you lately. You haven't felt the love of God in your life lately. But here's why you still come. Because he once revealed himself so clearly to you that there's no way to unsee and unknow what you have already seen and known. I think we've all gotten to that place where it's like, I haven't experienced God in so long, but I can't just up and go, well, he doesn't exist. He's a figment of my imagination. He's a human construct. We can't do that because there have been moments in our lives where he's revealed himself so powerfully, so clearly. You're kind of stuck, aren't you? Oh, man, I can't just walk away. But I long to see him again because it's been a long, long time since my heart beat faster because of Jesus. What David is saying is when you cannot see God today, it's important to remember how you've seen him yesterday because that same God is the one you're looking for. He hasn't run away and he hasn't hidden. There's still great hope that by seeking for God, you'll see him again the way you once did. I'm going to stop there because I've got to keep moving or I'm going to run out of time here. He moves on to say, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I've got to admit that um, I didn't like verses like this when I was younger. I'm like, come on, man. 
Does anyone really feel stuff like this? Like, your love is better than even living. Come on. Come on. I know that sounds hyper-idealistic, hard to relate to. But the truth is it's more relatable than you might think. I want you to think about it from the human side of this equation, the loving of God and the desire for the love of God. Think about when you were a kid. Or if that's been a really long time, think about if you're a parent when your kids were very little. Every child ever born longs for the love of their mother and father. There isn't a child born who is apathetic about that issue. Not one. Every human being yearns for the love of mother and father. And it's not a passing thing. It's a life-defining, heart-driving kind of need. We want a smile that looks real. We want a hug that feels genuine. We want an affirming word. Every child longs for this. You score the goal in soccer, and the first thing you look to is, is, did did mom and dad see? We just need that. We want to know that we are deeply loved by our parents. And if something breaks down there, that's problems for the rest of that person's life. It's a kind of breaking that isn't like a, a little speed bump. It ruins people when they don't receive the unconditional love. It doesn't mean that God can't put the pieces back together, but that scar doesn't go away. It, it heals, but it stays there as a mark, a reminder. When the love comes, it's like the first warm day of spring after a grueling winter. That first day where you can wear a short sleeve shirt and no jacket. Do you know the mood you're in that day when you're like, oh, yes, stupid winter is finally gone. I have a very different reaction to that. As you know, I get so sad when winter's over. I love winter. I love winter. I know which side I'd be on in Game of Thrones. I love winter. Okay? But most people hate winter. They can't wait for the warm weather to return. And you know that first day when the sun is shining and you drive with your windows open, you're like, life is good again. That mood, that's what it feels like when you receive the love of your mother or your father as a young child. And when you don't get it, or if that mother or father is taken away from you, it leaves a giant hollow place in you. We can't always control all of that. But there's no denying the effect it has on a human heart. What child who lost their daddy would not give up everything they have to get their daddy back if their daddy loved them? I was listening this week to that Luther Vandross song, Dance With My Father. I cannot listen to that song without crying. I got a problem. Like, that song makes me cry every time I hear it. And I don't cry easily. But it speaks to the the feeling of loss in a child's heart when they lose a daddy they loved who loved them. So that's the child side of that equation. When David says something like, your love is the best thing I know. It's the thing I crave the most. I treasure above all other things. It's not really that hyper-idealistic. It is what shaped every single one of us for a human being. All my life, I'm stronger because of the affirmation and love I receive from my mom and dad, but I have ministered to so many people who were scooped out in their hearts because they didn't get that same love. We all know what it feels like to be a child who wants the love of the Father more than anything else in this life. Now I want you to flip it and look at it from the Father's side. What it's like for God to hear words like that. To hear a human being say to him with a genuine heart, your loving me is what I want more than anything else in this world. I was just thinking about this. How when children are very little, we are like their whole world. I know not everyone here is a parent, but if you're a parent, I'm going to make you cry right now, okay? Because I was looking at some old baby pictures of my kids, and it was messing me up this week, man. When children are very little, they cannot get enough of you. They hang on you. They want to be around you. They sit on your lap and don't squirm out. 
Read to me. Play with me. Are you done with working yet? Do you still have more work? Do you have to do computer, daddy? And you're like, why do you want me to stop it? You're such a nuisance. Get away from me because they want you. You try to drop them off at preschool or to play date, and they're like, no. And they cling to your leg. And you're like, this is worrisome, but I kind of like it because look at you. You just want me more than anything. Do you remember? If you're a parent, do you remember when your children were that little? They actually wanted you. They wanted your love more than they wanted anything. And I suppose it's the natural way of things. But it is the universal heartbreak of everyone who has children that that state of being doesn't persist. Very early on, they come to a stage where, you know, I was looking at these baby pictures. They they just... We go to the park, and they wouldn't want to stand next to us for a picture. It's always like, who gets to be on daddy's lap? And it's like, golly. They just always wanted to be with us, on top of us, underneath us. They just loved us. But a natural order of things is that at some point they go, oh, you're not the only people in the world. And they begin to prefer the company of others over our company. You see them get so excited about an outing with a friend, and you're like, oh, man. When I say, hey, do you want to spend some time together? They're like, what, what are we going to do? What? Why? What? And you're like, oh, man. And so I look at all these baby pictures, not because I'm mad at my kids. Now, I have a wonderful relationship with our kids. It's different. It's still rewarding. But I will never stop treasuring the days when all they wanted was for me to love them. Because I had so much love to give, I don't think they could exhaust the supply. They could have said, Daddy, play with me. I'm like, I'll quit my job. I don't care. I couldn't, but I, I was tempted at times. Seeing those kids at that age unlocks something in me that just makes me want to pour out everything. I want you to picture what God feels when he hears us say to him, that's how I feel still. Imagine what it would do to you if your teenager or your adult child sidled up next to you and just curled them and just said, I just wanted to be by you, Dad. Mom, I just, I just wanted to be in the same room with you. And how your heart would come to life, the delight you'd feel, and the way you'd be like, you want a new car? What do you want? What do you, you want to go to Paris next week? You do that because there's so much to give. But it's not always sought, is it? Sometimes, though, when they don't get what you want, when they want, they say, you don't love me. Like, oh, you kid, you don't even know the half of it, what I feel for you. Just because you didn't get what you want, how can you think ever of me that I don't love you? I give up my life for you. Are you with me so far? This is the way God feels when he hears and sees that this is still how we feel for him. And some of us have forgotten what that felt like, but it's still right in there. These are not idealistic words that are pie in the sky. Oh, your love is better than life. It is the heart of every human soul to say to their father, it is what matters most to me. I've forgotten. Help me to remember again. And so he says right after that, I will bless you as long as I live. Here's what we learn about human relationships between parents and children. If love is poured out unconditionally, there's no guarantees, but the much greater likely that when love is poured out unselfishly, unconditionally, even though you go through that necessary period of distancing and separation, by the way, don't cling too tightly to your kids. It's important for them to figure out who they are and to the world. Don't be like, you go to the dungeon, never leave. They have to, but they come back. If you love them well, they know where home is. They will come back to you. The early part of a child's life is not about them loving you, okay? It cannot be about that. Young children haven't developed the true capacity for the kind of love that's a choice. They develop that later. If you've poured love into a child, That child, nourished, nurtured by that unconditional love, gains the ability to love you back when they grow. If you try to extract that love when they're little, and this is not a parenting seminar, so I'll stop there, but 
You know, the point is, when you pour unconditional love into a young heart, it grows the ability to love you back. David needed to remember how much God's love meant to him, nourished him, fed his heart, so then he could say to God, and I will bless you as long as I live. That's a pretty big statement. I know many of my friends from college, we said those words to God together. Arm in arm at a church revival, be like, let's do this together for Jesus till we die. And I meant it, they meant it. I remember the fire in our eyes. Remember when you were like 20 and you're going to change the world? Everything was powerful and meaningful. I remember that. And I look around me today and so many of those friends with whom I locked arms in college and said, let's do this together for the rest of our lives. I haven't seen them in church in decades. It's so easy to say things like this. But if you lose sight of the love of God for you, you will not be able to sustain a love for God back. Think about a teenager. You give them a brand new car, how effusively they will say things like, thank you, so I love you, daddy. Any errand you ever want, I'll just run it. I don't care what time of the day it is. One week later, can you get some milk? Do I have to? No, you don't have to. I just wish you could remember what you said a week ago. (laughs) But you know how when you're being blessed, it's so easy to go, oh, for the rest of my life, anything you want. It's so easy to make effusive promises when life is good. But David had been so nourished by the love of God for him for so many years, through thick and thin, that in the worst period of his life, he is still able to say words like this to God. This is one of the true tests of the strength of a real relationship with God, as that you find even in the hardest places, you find yourself turning towards God rather than away from Him. You say, God, what other help do I have? Life is terrible right now. Help me. And they turn to the Father rather than away. I've read some, some scholars who have written, you cannot really know anything about the truth of your faith until hard times come. There's no way in good times to prove your faith. And I had to really wrestle through that statement. It felt a little too too overstated. But the more I've meditated on it, the more true I think it is. I don't know that you could actually prove much about your faith in the good times. You can claim a great deal, but the proof comes when nothing encourages you to cling to God and you find that that's all your heart wants to do. For most people, it's the hard times that knock us off that horse of faith. I think Job so beautifully exemplifies the heart that God is looking for. The kind of heart that has a faith that endures to the end of the journey. There was a time when Job was afflicted early on with terrible skin lesions And he was in really bad shape from head to toe, covered in sores that were open and weeping. And the verse before this, verse 8 says, he sat quietly by himself with shards of pottery and was scraping his wounds. In other words, he's like, oh man, this stinks. And he's just picking at the scabs and cleaning off the weeping. And the whole time he's not uttering a word. He's suffering in silence because though it is the hardest thing he's been through, he refuses to speak out against God. And his wife sees him and is going, what is your problem? You've done nothing but good all your life, and look what happens to you. If there's a God, he has forgotten you, you idiot. You know, leave it to a spouse to tell you stuff like that, right? I mean, he's trying so hard to hang on to his faith, and he's like, you're so stupid, Job. This God you honor has stopped honoring you. Quit it. And she walks up to him and says, are you still maintaining your integrity? I hope none of you ever say this to your spouse. She goes, curse God and die. It's just horrible. I can't believe stuff like this is in the Bible, but there it is. And he replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Don't, only in your inside voice. Don't say stuff like that outside. Okay? But out loud, but... And you're, you know, you're talking like a foolish woman. And here's why she's, she's, he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? 
In other words, are you only going to see and recognize God when life is good? Or will you also allow that this God you see, you know, might sometimes allow a season of terrible suffering? He's not saying he enjoys it or even understands it. He's not saying it's easy to see God through it. But he's seen enough of God to say, if this is God, I cannot properly know him by shedding him and rejecting him when he stops giving good things. If this is God, then he is my God in easy times and horrible times alike. And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. God affirms his words because his attitude honored him. Let me wrap up here. David goes on to say, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now, in our hyper-calorie counting culture, um, the truth is that's not really a, uh, an inviting statement, is it? But I want you to know, in a time when people ate the same thing, like, do you want barley loaf or do you want barley loaf today? <laughs> When it was like that, the idea of rich, fatty foods with flavor and spices from other parts of the world, that would get people going. And as a king, he would remember what rich, fatty, good food tasted like. I think for foodies, one of the greatest fantasies about becoming wealthy is not all the stuff you'd buy, but the fantasy of having a full-time chef on staff who prepares for you Michelin star food breakfast lunch, and dinner. I mean, picture not one unexciting meal. You'll never have to stare at a bowl of honeycomb unless that's what you want. Fruit Loops, no. Every meal, something delicious and innovative. That's what David enjoyed as king. And now he's out in the wilderness eating locusts and barley loaf, and he's going, you know what? God, when you enter my life, I'm as satisfied as that feeling of anticipation when I sit down to a delicious meal in my palace table. Think about that. I told you earlier that when I was a Christian, statements like this annoyed me because they, feel, they felt dishonest. Who actually believes stuff like this? That you would compare being with God to the anticipation and excitement of sitting down at a Michelin star restaurant and eating the finest foods this world has to offer. Then again, I was young. I had the whole world in front of me. It was a big world full of delights, none of which I'd actually experienced yet. And I was like, you know, I'm sure God's awesome, but he's invisible. This world I see is full of delights, and I'm going to eat every single one of them. If you know me well, I don't spend my money on possessions, but on experiences. I collect experiences as my souvenirs in life. I hope I die without a whole lot of stuff in my home, but my heart and my memories are going to be full of the wonders of this world. And that's what I set out on as a quest when I was younger. If I go to a city, I will see its greatest sights. If there's a restaurant everyone's talking about, I must eat there at least once, whether I enjoy it or not, just because I want to experience the delights that this world has to offer. Thank God for the internet. I can't even read a book without someone going, the Duomo in Florence was of unbelievable majesty, and I can't even read it anymore. I'm like, i got to see what it looks like. That's just the way my heart was when I was younger. This world seems so big, so beautiful, so dripping with promise. 30 years have passed. This year I'll be 53. I keep reminding you of that because my age is becoming a huge part of how I experience the world. I have to say, even though I haven't been wealthy, at 53 I have experienced so much of what this world has to show me. I've traveled to every continent but Antarctica. I have seen things I've sat in cages with adult cheetahs and petted their heads. Any of you done that? 
None of you are stupid enough to do that. My point is, when I was younger, I thought, that's what I'm going to do, and it's going to make me feel alive. And now I'm not so sure I'd be that excited to put my head inside the open mouth of a cheetah. I'm just sort of tired. The glow of this world is fading fast. It takes more and more for me to actually get excited. I took my family to Cancun not too long ago, and I was like, yeah, it was great, but if I had to go back, I wouldn't experience it with the same zeal that my kids did. It's just another resort and another beach, and I've seen a lot of resorts and a lot of beaches. Are you with me? Here's one thing I can say. Those rare times when I feel the presence of God and his love over me, every day I get to the office at 8, I have a glorious hour of privacy and solitude. Every day of the week. And sometimes in that hour before anyone else shows up, God will meet with me and say things to me and show me things that make me able to bear the weight of my life. I wouldn't trade anything for those moments. They don't come every week. But I wouldn't trade anything for those moments when he feels so near to me. And here's the amazing thing. I've tasted a lot of delights. That is the only one whose glow has not faded over the years. It's the only that no matter how many times I taste it, I don't lose my taste for it. Each time it happens, I'm grateful like it was the first time. How many things in this life can you say that of? So sure, dial it up a notch. Go more extreme. Instead of coach, go first class. Instead of first class, go private jet. But after a while, you will squeeze all the juice out of this fruit and you will still find yourself thirsty and hungry. There is only one delight in this whole human experience that doesn't sour with age, but it gets better with every tasting. And that is the knowledge and the experience that the living God loves you, is present with you, His favor rests on you. And when this sad, broken, incomplete life is over, forever and ever, you will dwell with Him. That is the only delight worth giving a whole life to. One last thing to share with you that I want to skip for time, but I just feel like I can't because it has been so moving for me this week that I got to give it to you as a gift. I'm so indebted to John Piper for one concept especially that he's famous for, and that's the concept of Christian hedonism. I know that sounds weird, but he says, we're not supposed to be afraid of pleasure. We're supposed to be greedy for it. He says, the great hindrance to worship is not that we are pleasure-seeking people, but that we are willing to settle for such pitiful pleasures. The greatest pleasure available to a human being is to feel the love of God washing over you. It's the way a child feels when you hold them close. There is no greater delight available in this life than that. 37 years ago, John Piper preached a message to his church in Minneapolis. And in it, he described out of Psalm 63 a vision, a dream for his church. If every member could understand this, could long for that feeling of closeness with God and worship together on a Sunday out of that heart what church would look like. And in that sermon, he shared this dream, and it so moved me this week that I just want to end with his words 37 years later in a very different place. I think his words say better than I ever could what my own dream for our church is. So I want to leave you with the words of this dream from Pastor Piper. I dream about a gathering of people who love the conversation of Christian friendship but who give it up for one hour and during the organ prelude and bow in unashamed earnestness of prayer that the Spirit of God might descend upon our worship and shake this place with His power. I dream of a gathered family of believers on Sunday morning who are as genuinely happy in God as families are on the first day of vacation, 
or around a big turkey at Thanksgiving or beside the Christmas tree when the gifts are given out. Unfettered hearts of joy, free to say amen when the choir has carried us to God, when the organ prays, has enthroned the King of Kings, when the preacher speaks some incomparable gospel truth. I dream of an hour together where grudges melt and old festering wounds are healed in the warmth of the joy of the Lord. An hour with God where battered saints absorb the strength and power of the Lord to re-enter their work revived and strong on Monday. I dream of a people gathered hungry to hear the word of God and to make a joyful noise to God of their salvation with song and organ and piano and trumpets and flutes and strings and cymbals and shouts. I dream of one hour a week with you where we encounter God together in such a real and unmistakable way that strangers will enter and say, God is surely in this place. Let's bow together. Let's sit in that for just one minute. Let him speak and move us. God, we pray that you would also make that our dream for our church. God, I don't believe that that kind of worship will come because of better music and better preaching, better media. It will happen as we bring hearts that are becoming young again. Restore to us our first love and the hearts we had when we were children, babies in Christ. Where your love was treasured. Lord, this world is getting smaller and smaller. Its shine is fading and we're growing tired. Help us to see you because you are still very much alive. You are as worthy of our best of everything today. Our worship, our devotion, our trust. You are as worthy of that today as you ever have been. You have never changed. You've always been here. Open the eyes of our hearts to see you. We pray for those who are struggling along. That seeing you would revive their hearts. Touch their lives today. With such a sense of your nearness and approval of them, your great love for them, that they would feel you. They would not have to imagine you. They will feel you in their bones. Revive us again and show us how worthy you are of everything. We pray this in the awesome name of Jesus. 
Amen. We sing songs like that, not always because we feel them now, but because it's what we want to feel. We have to aspire to something. And I want us as a church to aspire to stop being tired and start being alive again. To pursue God with all our hearts. Find that He's not hiding from us. He wants us to be young again in our faith. To be alive again. Excited again. Doesn't it sound better than being worn out and jaded? Cynical. God can do that for us. He'll cling to us. Let's cling to Him. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, may God bring us to life again. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.